0: This morning, let me go before our Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that You would uh, be with us today; that uh, we would uh, learn from Your Word, that we learn uh, some valuable things and lessons from uh, our study here uh, of Gentry's book on eschatology. Lord, I pray that uh, we would take them to heart; that we would uh, endeavor to uh, to learn these things from Your Word, and that we would apply them to our hearts, that we might uh, live holy and pleasing lives before You; that we might live. Uh, uh, with such hope that we might be ready to defend it and that we might be ready to uh, to go out into the world and to uh, bring uh, the gospel, your good news of salvation to all the world uh, so that they uh, might be uh, translated out of the dark world uh, into your glorious light, into your church, um, and into your kingdom. We are so thankful for uh, that kingdom as it ever goes forward and as it ever grows. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I will open us up today with a scripture reading from isaiah um this is quite a famous passage as it relates to eschatology um, isaiah 65 starting in verse 17. for behold i create new heavens and a new earth in the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his old days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. For the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Yahweh. And their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and lion shall eat straw like an oxen, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt, hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh. This is, of course, passage that is very key as we are speaking about the new heavens and new earth and we'll come back to this passage a couple times during our discussion today uh, if you've been with us thus far we have been talking about eschatology and specifically uh, Gentry's book uh, he shall have dominion we are now going to be entering into chapters 13 14 eschatological time frames and eschatological features. Now, admittedly, we are zooming through this book, and for that I do apologize, because this might be the place where we would spend the most time um, if we were really uh, digging deep into these things. Today we're going to be talking about the 70 weeks, the last days, the age, this age versus the age to come, the millennium. The Day of the Lord, the Great Tribulation, the Rebuilding of the Temple, and the New Creation. We're going to see if we can fit all of that within, well, maybe like 30 minutes. But I don't know how uh, we'll be able to really do that. Um, So it may seem like we are zooming through. um, And so for that, I do apologize. I will try to leave a good amount of time for questions. um, But I want to at least frame, uh, at least to kind of give a cursory overview of what Gentry says about these events. Um, what is uh maybe the post-millennial view of these things now what are the 70 weeks not everyone knows what the 70 weeks uh, may be referring to though in the dispensational mindset it's a very key and critical 70 weeks that are being referred to and that of course is in the passage not in revelation but in the second most uh, viewed book as far as eschatology is concerned and that is the book of daniel so let's go to the book of daniel And let us look at these 70 weeks um, and what is a post-mill understanding of this passage specifically. So let's look at, this is going to be in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. If I could get a reader for us. Daniel chapter 9, and just read verses 24 through 27. Thank you. So this is and gentry even admits, probably one of the harder passages to really understand or interpret and this isn't something that uh, every post mill is agreed on that every a mill or every dispensationalist is agreed on either uh, you will find many different interpretations within all three of the camps here? Um, and so what is this being what is being referred to well he admits and he even quotes many different dispensationalists to admit No one can really interpret this literally uh, if you say 70 weeks from the day that, that Daniel is writing uh, They're just but uh, this seems to fall flat. What is being referred to here? Um, ha- there has to be something so the dispensationalist gets around this by saying there's kind of like a delayed response that Daniel's like He's he's looking into the future and he's like starting at a certain point with 70 weeks exactly out from when these events are going to take place whether those events being uh, something happening in, in Christ's day or, or With the dispensationalist would like to push it all even all the way further into that those last days, right? Uh, or, or what we call the eschaton um, but uh, I like the way the Gentry kind of pulls this in and he says that a week uh, doesn't always have to mean a literal week of days uh, we call it a week of days and it's called uh, we call that a week because that's seven days and if, uh, if you've read Old Testament scripture or if you're familiar with the way the numbers are used in the Old Testament uh, what does seven tend to represent seven uh, isn't it God's number? It is it is God's number of perfection, yes, yeah, it's fullness, it's completeness. And so he says that, that perhaps what we could what we could view this as, and we have seventy weeks, is a seventy weeks of years, is the way that he, he proposes that we look at this. So that would mean it's seventy times seven years, which would be a four hundred and ninety year time span. If if what Daniel is referring to is four hundred and ninety years, well that does actually push us right to The Messiah and the coming of the Messiah into uh, the time when Christ is here on earth, which actually seems to to line up quite well with what's being described here, especially uh, there's going to be a covenant uh, renewed and confirmed here with his people uh, before that desolation happens, which seems to line up very nicely with Christ coming uh, to his people, uh, renewing and confirming a covenant already made with them, that is he's going, there are going to be people that believe on him and they will be uh, they will be protected and, and preserved by him, by his power. But then there is going to be a desolation that happens, which, of course, is that desolation that is the destruction of the temple. Um, so this does seem to line up very nicely here. Um, uh, in if, if you take that approach, that this week here is referring to a week of years, a, a, a seven-year total. Um, and this this is his, his proposed uh, view of it. He also notes in the, the covenantal language and the structure of this passage talking about this this covenant, and this is very key and very uh, typical of a prophet. Right, prophets typically come um, whenever there is something bad going on, right in in Israel. Um, and there's a warning, right, that if you continue to break the covenant that God has has made with you, if you continue to go against the commands that uh, I have given you, Israel, well then here is what is to come, right? And they they give that future prophecy. As a warning to the people of Israel that here's what's coming, therefore repent and turn back to God. And so this covenantal language is very typical of what a prophet uh, would be speaking of, especially in the context of him giving a a future prediction um, within his book and his writing. Um, And so uh, that... uh, that is where he he comes down on the interpretation of this passage, but he admits very uh, very freely, as he quotes many all-mills and postmill or uh, pre-mills uh, as well, admitting that this is perhaps one of the hardest passages for us to really uh, deal with, and we could easily uh, have multiple classes just on how do we interpret this. And he does have a, a whole uh, part of his book where he really dives deep even into the Greek of this pa- or the Hebrew of this passage, um, and is. Are uh, really trying to dissect what is being spoken of here, but uh, the culmination of this, he believes, and I agree with, is is in Christ. This is speaking of Christ and it is a a a foreshadowing, a, a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And one, though, a very important, and I'll read some quotes from from Gentry, uh, as he quotes actually some other people. Um, this is only going to be on page 325 as we talk about the last days. This is a very important, uh, I guess, feature, you might say, of the, um, the eschatological debate. What are the last days? These last days, these latter days, as they're sometimes translated. Um, the phrase, the last days, are all throughout Scripture, all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament, really all over the New Testament specifically. Um, and what do they mean? What are they referring to? Well, uh, this is this brings us to what many in the dispensational camp have said. Tim LaHaye writes this, and I'm starting on his quote starts on 324. Tim LaHaye comments about the those of us living amongst this generation, um, the duration that is of World War One. And Tim LaHaye says this: There is no question that we are living in the last days. The fact that we are the gen this, the fact that we are the generation that will be on the earth when our Lord comes certainly should not depress us. Tim LaHaye, being speaking for many of that time, many of, of this time, uh, that all the things going on, we look at World War II, we look at war, uh, the Cold War and and the threats of nuclear war. Um, all of these things must mean that we are in the last days. Well, he has a whole bunch of other quotes from other people as well. Um, He says that many say, the Antichrist is now close at hand. Uh, The world is failing, passing away, and it it, it witnesses to to us its ruin, not now by the age but by the end of things. Because of this, the Christian should know that still more terrible things are imminent. Indeed, already the heavenly fire is giving birth. Already the approach of the divine punishment is manifest already doom, upcoming disaster is heralded. Because of world circumstance, the plea is, consider, I beg you, whether the age, this age can last for that long. And finally, all creation now waits in suspense for his arrival. The world which must be transformed anew is already pregnant with the end that is to come on the final days. Now, why do I read those are six quotes in succession from theologians, all saying the end is nigh, the end is here. Well, Gentry pulls a fast one on us because all six of those quotes were not from uh, contemporaries of Tim LaHaye or our contemporaries. All six of those come from the first few hundred years of the church's existence. Those are all early church fathers speaking of their time. um, As they look around and what do they see, but of course terrible things happening to Christians, terrible things happening to the church, and they say... The end is nigh. All of that to say, every generation has been filled with theologians that have speculated that we are in the last days because of what's going on around us. Um, and so that at very least should should humble us and should make us stop and think, if we're about to speculate that we are in those last days, that, that Christ is going to return tomorrow, uh, that everyone has thought that in every generation, and perhaps we should... We should hesitate to say such things um, just because of what we see in the world around us. Um, This brings us to uh, a very important point about what does these last days mean? Because the apostle says that there are last days. Sometimes the apostle even says that we are in the last days. So what does he mean? Was he deceived? Did he look around the world? Did Paul or the other apostles look around at the world and, and were they deceived in thinking that Christ must return tomorrow? Well, let's read um, Hebrews 1 and see what's being referred to here. If we go to Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews says what in the second verse, just the second verse of chapter 1. Thank you. So the end, the last days being spoken of here, come with Christ. Christ is revealing to us who God is. We know who God is much better now that Christ has come. And he has come in these last days. The writer of Hebrews. Speaks that we are in the last days, not because of what he doesn't look around the world and say, look at all these terrible things happen. Therefore, we're in the last days. He said, no, the last days started when Christ got here, when Christ is here. And there's a reason for that. So that gives us context for wh- whenever Paul is speaking or others are speaking, or maybe this is Paul. Some think this is actually Paul as well. Um, whenever he uses that phrase, the last days, what is he really referring to? Well, let's turn to first Corinthians and we'll see. What Paul actually does say as it relates to the last days, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if someone could read just verse 11 for us. end of the ages, as Paul says, have already come upon him. He's not speaking of something radically in the future, of some great tribulation that is to come decades or centuries or millenniums to come. He is saying, no, the end of the ages is here. So this then really gets, and this is really culminated in Second Timothy, as I think we really do see what he's really speaking to here if we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and we look at and I'll just read this very briefly because this is just a long, long list of, of terrible things happening or that will happen to those in the church uh, but he says but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud, arrogant, boastful, disobedient to parents, etc. Et cetera, et cetera, But this is happening in the last days. So does Paul think, do the apostles think that the last days are referring to this great time of tribulation or that something terrible is going to happen that, uh, and then there will be the end and Christ will return? Well, that doesn't seem what they're, to be what they're referring to in the last days. Otherwise, Hebrews would not have, not have said the last days start with Christ. Paul would not have said the last days are here, the end of the, or he calls it the end of the ages are here, but then to even make himself more clear, he tells Timothy to be ready for the last day. So either Paul is mistaken, he thinks the last days are coming, and he's warning Timothy to be ready for that time right before Christ returns, and it's going to happen in Timothy's lifetime, or he's referring to something else entirely, and he's saying the last days those times when these, these bad things do happen, be ready for them, Timothy. It's going to happen in your lifetime. And what are those things that are going to happen? It's that people in the church are going to be drunkards and boastful and prideful and this list of things, which we see all throughout church history as there are many in the church who come in and try to, be, uh, to stir up trouble, uh, to be false, false prophets and, or, or just those that stir up trouble and stir up divisions in Christ's body. So that is what is really being referred to here. This is what is the marker, or it's one of the markers of what the last days are, that people like this will be in the church, and we've seen that in every generation of the church. Well, then the last days is what we might call the church, a key age of the church. We are in the last days. We have been in the last days since the time of the church's inception. And so that should be a comfort to us. Um, but it should cause us not to think that the last days mean that Christ is coming tomorrow. If we are in the last days, and I agree with Tim LaHaye in that, we are in the last days. I just don't think that that means that Christ is returning tomorrow. We are in the last days. He may not return for another 10,000 years. Um, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't worry me. I am not depressed. Um, I am actually hopeful that the Christ is still working in these last days through his church. Um, and so I think it's very important. Uh, and this ties us in to the next feature that Gentry brings up, which is the a this age versus the age to come. This age versus the age to come. And this has had uh, many theologians have talked about what this this means, what the age to come means. Uh, Paul talks about the age to come multiple times. Um, he talks about this age. He even in Galatians calls it this present evil age. Um, what is being referred to in these two ages? Um, because the thing is, we, we see this language of what the age to come is going to be like. It's always talked about as being this very positive thing, as this whenever the resurrection of the dead happens, uh, whenever there are all these great benefits of the reign of King Jesus. Yet we know that in, from other passages that King Jesus is reigning even now. So if the age to come is when Christ is ruling, but Christ is ruling now, and this—and the present evil age is that the evil age, especially the Old Testament, seems to be that time before Christ reigns. But then the apostles even speak of this age being the age that the Old Testament is talking about as the present evil one. What's going on And Gentry, along with many in the Reformed camp, has, agrees that what's being referred to is a kind of overlap. But there is this age, and there is the age to come, and we are receiving benefits now, even now, for that age to come. That in the age to come, it will be consummated, it will be perfected. But Christ is reigning. We are receiving those benefits now. But there is still that overlap of this age. There is still sin going on in this world. There is still death in this world. Uh, the gospel is still going forth. It does not finish covering every single corner of the earth yet. It's still going out. And so all of these things to say is the last days is referring to the overlap of the ages, is how Gentry puts it. Um, that this age and the age to come overlaps in these last days. Uh, so this brings together the way that then we can be consonant with the Old Testament as they are looking forward. Um, they are in this age, right? They are not yet in that uh, the age to come. We are now at the beginning of the age to come, but that age to come will be consummated in Christ's second coming. We then move to number four, which is the imminent return of of Christ. Um, the imminent return of Christ. And this really becomes a really big issue that I saw specifically um, in my time at Westminster. Because though the dispensationalists will talk about the imminency of Christ's return, and what does that mean? All mills will even talk about the imminency of Christ's return and they they will seemingly have a very contradictive thing. They'll even note their contradiction and, and talk about it like as if this is a positive thing. Uh, Gentry actually quotes an all as he says, uh, the ah says that Christ's return is both imminent and distant. And then says this as if this is a, a, a thing that we can uh, justify in our minds. Uh, imminent meaning it's almost here, and distant meaning it's, it's very far away. This, how can those two things be true at the same time? Um, they'll try to have some kind of spiritual meaning for that. Gentry's claim is that doesn't, this just doesn't make sense on the face of it. How can we say that Christ's return is imminent and distant at the same time? Uh, quite frankly we don't know when Christ's return is even told us that we won't know so we don't know if it's imminent or uh, or if it's distant but if we move to Matthew 25 we have uh, a, a hint here at, at really what's uh, yes sir
1: we can
0: yes we are that is a good point Right, we, we are limited in our own time scale and our own time frame, right? And so that isn't to say, and Gentry would not say, um, that when it says that crisis is returning soon, or I think it can say the words words soon like that, um, it's not uh, God. Of course, is saying soon relative, right? And he to us, it's not going to seem relative uh, because we are we are fixed in a point in time and we have a very limited time scale. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a very good point. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, but we see, but I think what's really uh, important for us to realize is that, li- that liberal theologians, liberals in general, take this in a different direction. And I saw this firsthand at ACU where they said, the New Testament is filled with an expectation of Christ's imminent return. And then Christ did not return in the lifetime of Paul or Timothy or even 10 generations after Paul and Timothy. Therefore, they were mistaken. right? And that was that's the, the liberal argument for the, one of the untrustworthy points of the New Testament. And I saw many, uh, many kids buy into that, like, oh, well, Paul must have thought that, that Christ was returning tomorrow. And that's why he was so vigorous. Um, he had that, uh, that dispensational uh, kind of outlook on life. Um, which, of course, for the liberal is easy to convince a kid who has been raised in the dispensational theology because that's the way that he's been trained and he's been raised his whole life and, and trained to go out and preach the gospel. And it's like, oh, Paul had the same idea. Oh, but Paul was mistaken. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe the Bible's mistaken. And then you start going down that rabbit hole. Um, and so I want us to turn, though, to Matthew 25 and, and ask a question of what, what Christ is getting at in this parable here. Can someone read just verses 14 through 19? You won't read the whole parable. Here's 14 through 19. <clears throat> There we go. We see now, of course, there's a lot. This, this passage is one of the most famous parables that Christ tells. There's two things that Gentry points out. It's right there in verse 14 and verse 19. In verse 14, the kingdom is like a man going on a long journey or a man going off to a far land. And then again in verse 19, now after a long time, this, of course, is, is referring to, and, and everyone would agree with, with this, every, every Christian is going to agree, the interpretation of this passage is like Christ or God giving us talents in his kingdom and expecting that we use them fruitfully in our work on this earth for him, he right? Defined. Yes, yeah, this is referring to a talent, right? We use the word talent as, I have a talent that I'm going to show you a talent show, but this is referring to a specific monetary, uh, a currency, foreign currency, right? A talent really being normally what it is used to refer to as a, a year's wages. It's, a, it's quite an exceeding sum of like money. Money, currency. Right, exactly. Um, and so then what the the passage then goes on to talk about is, did, did they use it? Did they invest? Did they do these things and, and come back with a extra right at the end of the time that the master is gone um but the here as he's talking about the the master giving money to these individuals and expecting that they use it well and use it uh, profitably um he does so over a long time which seems to be very indicative if, if we're saying this is this is christ who then gives his apostles commission gives them marching orders to go forward and he expects that they obey him, he expects that the church do exactly what he told them to do, well, then what this parable would would seem to indicate is that Christ is going to be gone for a long time. He is the master who is giving over the, uh, giving power to the church, saying, here, this is what you are to do. You, You, Peter, that is, as you stand as representative for the church itself, have the powers to find loose. On Earth, Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and then I'll come back. If this parable is, is, is right, it's not going to be I'm coming back tomorrow. It's not going to be I'm coming back in ten years or a hundred years, clearly not a thousand years. Um, I'm going to come back after a long, long time. Um, and he expects that there will be multiplication, and we have seen exactly that. As so many, many faithful men have gone forward and used their talents as such. And then of course, and I'll briefly mention the millennium. Uh, we could, as I said, each one of these points could be an entire class, if not more. The pre-mill will say their first their first attack on the postnull interpretation of the millennium is that we don't view it as a literal thousand years, and therefore we're we're abusing a text, we're misusing the text. Uh, Gentry's response to this is actually quite simple. Um, he says, "If if that's if that's your response, well, then does God only own cattle on one thousand hills? He doesn't own it on the thousandth and first hill. Uh, does, uh, is Israel being promised uh, generations a thousand times more numerous uh, than all the other nations around them that are accursed? Does that mean uh, that they are literally having a thousand times more babies than all the nations around them?" Um, or are they not having a thousand and one, or five hundred times, or whatever it might be? Uh, does God is God only faithful to a thousand generations, and then that thousandth and first generation, He ceases to be faithful? Um, or um, whenever David says, "I desire uh, to be in Your courts for a thousand years," does that mean that on the thousandth and first year, David would rather leave uh, the courts of God? No, of course not. This is a common way of speaking. It's very common for us to say, not in a thousand years would I do that. We're not saying that in the thousand the first year I would do it. No, you were saying, I don't want to do that. I wouldn't want to do that. This is just a very common common parlance. This is the way that people speak. This is the way that the apostles speak, and they're not lying when they say a thousand that God is faithful to a thousand generations, um, and then he is faithful to the first one after the thousand generations. They are using hyperbole to speak a truth, and that truth is that God is absolutely faithful. And so, too, uh, when we approach the millennium, which, of course, seems to be what, what all of this is centered around, even though it's only mentioned in this one passage, this is all centered around that. And so he, he proposes that it's not wrong for us to look at this and say, yes, Christ will reign a thousand years That meaning that Christ is going to reign thousands upon thousands of years. That he's going to always reign. His reign is absolute. He has begun his reign. It is inaugurated. We know it will be consummated when he comes back. And at that point, as we all confess, as the church has confessed since the very beginning, Christ's kingdom shall what? Shall have no end. This is what the church has historically believed. That the Christ's kingdom is not a thousand years exactly, and then it stops. Christ's kingdom doesn't end. And then he says, "But the really the problem being that for the premill and for this under, or at least for the dispensationalist, for this understanding that they have, that Christ comes back, there is a thousand year reign, and then there is a resurrection and a judgment, and there's all the things at the very very end that happens here, and that the binding of Satan is kind of like this this time that's an interim." That doesn't really seem to line up with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But 1 Corinthians 15, if you look at verses 23 and 24, we will see there doesn't seem to be room for where the dispensationalist wants to put that thousand years. And I'll read it very quickly here. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits; Then in his coming, those who belong to Christ... Then comes to the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. This seems to be one thing after another, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, who is raised, is speaking of those who are raised. Then his coming, those who belong to Christ. As soon as Christ returns, at his coming, not after his coming, not a thousand years after his coming. At Christ's coming, we will be raised. We will have our glorified bodies. The resurrection will happen at Christ's return. It will not be a thousand-year delay. And so He says, the dispensationalists cannot—they can look at uh, Revelation 20, and if they're zeroing in on that and they see oh, well, it, well, has to be this way, this way, this way, because I see this order. He says, well, you're not—you're not backing up, or you're not considering what First Corinthians has to say on this, because. This doesn't seem to line up with that, so maybe your interpretation of Revelation 20 is misplaced because you're not, you're not even attempting to interpret 1 Corinthians 15. And there's other passages, too, that we could get into, but there really doesn't seem to be a justification for putting that thousand years there and trying to fit it in between um, Christ's return, or his first return, and then uh, the uh, Judgment kind of veering into the next chapter here. The day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Well just to be brief here um, considering our time here. The day of the Lord is always referring to, it's a theme throughout the Old Testament referring to a time when God is judging. Now there are really two ways that, that can that can happen. The day of the Lord can refer to that eschatological time, right? Because sometimes it's referring to the judgment when christ sits on his throne and he judges and he puts the goats on one side and the sheep on the other um, but there are many times when it's referring to a specific judgment that there is something that happens in time before christ's return uh, and this he shows to be the case all throughout the prophets right there are many times whenever the day of the lord is that day when god visits uh the amalekites or the midianites or israel itself uh, and god actually does carry through with His judgment long before Christ even comes the first time? Um, And so he says, then does that mean that whenever the apostles speak of the day of the Lord, that it's always referring to a great tribulation that is to come before Christ returns? Or could they also mean something that happens at time and space? And of course Gentry would say, well, yes, something did happen, especially uh, in in light of language, language like what Hebrew says, when it says the day of the Lord is coming soon. Um, And also then... That Peter warns those who he's preaching to in Jerusalem that they should, be, they should turn, repent, and they will be saved from this perverse generation. This perverse generation. He's speaking of his contemporaries. What does it mean to be saved from this generation? Not just that they leave it, but they'll be saved from the judgment that is to come to it. And he's referring then, of course, to what does happen in 70 AD, which is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem at large and the burning of the records and the dispersion of the entire Jewish people which of course is as, as I've mentioned before is even uh, corroborated by uh, texts from the time like uh, Josephus who talk of the Christians who left Jerusalem before the siege of Jerusalem itself but that brings us to of course the great tribulation which is such an important uh, aspect when we're talking of this, and we can return to Matthew 24 um, and kind of see here. And I'm not going to read the whole thing; don't have time. We could spend multiple classes really dissecting just this passage here, Matthew 24. But I'll highlight a few things for us. This scene, This is referring to the destruction of the temple and it even speaks of that directly but if we even look at verse 34 Christ even says something that has to do with what we just said of the day of the Lord which is truly I say unto you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place now what the dispensationalists has done with that passage and you've probably heard it many many a time it's funny that they use this passage because this is the same passage where we hear Christ say that you shall not know the day or the hour of the Son of Man's return. But this passage tends to be used by dispensationalists to say, well, that means that when something happens, or that when something happens, whether it's something like a World War II like event where something like the nation of Israel becoming a state or all these different things, that therefore, now the clock starts, right? Now this generation is the, this, this generation that Christ is referring to. But does that seem to be what the text is saying, that, that one of these events that's referring to here, and of course none of the events here speak of the state of Israel, um, but there's, w- whenever uh, it, that one of these events happens and then suddenly there's a ticker now, that, that now as, as long as one person that was alive during that time is alive, then that's when Christ will return. No, that doesn't seem to be, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. The most common sense reading of that, the most literal reading you might say, is that Christ's generation will not pass away before these things happen. And if you read all these terrible things that happen, they are referring to what a siege would indeed be like. A siege is a nasty and terrible affair. Um, If you are trapped inside a city and you have no means of water or food, um, and yes especially as it, it speaks very vehemently about uh, those especially he says woe to those who are, who are pregnant this time who are going to have to give birth during this time whenever everything is, is going on and you can't get out of the city and you can't get food that does seem pretty, pretty consonant with the siege of Jerusalem and the utter destruction that we see described there but then we have to deal with then of course the rebuilding Of the temple as well. This uh, Gentry has quite a bit to say about, and we uh, really don't have time to really get into that, but there's a lot there. And he says the biggest problem here is whenever there are passages like Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, eight whole chapters or nine whole chapters, are really talking over and over again about the temple being rebuilt. Now we do know that after Ezekiel writes, is the temple rebuilt? Yes, it is rebuilt, right? Ezekiel is talking in a time in which the temple, the first temple, was destroyed, and there would be a rebuilding of the temple. So that did happen, right? We, we do know that what he's referring to did actually happen. Well, there is also a spiritual note, uh, aspect to the text because it talks about uh, the place where God dwells and God's holy mountain and rivers flowing out from it. Well, that sounds very familiar as well um, as we look at Revelation itself and the temple. What is a temple if not that place where God dwells, where God dwells with his people? Christ even refers to himself, his body, as a temple, right? Whenever he actually, in that Matthew passage, when he's passing by and he says, truly, I tell you, this temple is going to be destroyed. And the Pharisees, they freak out and he says, no, I I'm, was I'm referring to my body. But then he also says, but that, that temple will also be destroyed, which it actually does. Um, but uh, he is referring to his body as a temple. Even our bodies are called a temple. And so whenever Ezekiel is speaking of this, there does seem to be that, that double meaning. A, the temple is rebuilt, but then Christ himself was rebuilt. He, his temple, his body, was broken, and he died, and then he was resurrected three days later. Um, and so there does seem to be that uh, aspect. But he says, but the biggest problem, though, with saying what the dispensationalists say, which is that there will be a rebuilding of the temple, and it will be in existence in the millennium, and that it will be in operation during the millennium. He says this just flies in the face of what the New Testament says. That there would be a time when Christ is reigning. And in that time, in the, in the consummate reign, right? Because he, he knows what the, the, the dispensationalists are already saying. That in that millennium, millennium is not now. It's then. It's after Christ is physically here again. And we are now in that consummate reign and yet there are sacrifices going on? That that can't stand. The Hebrews would have a lot to say about that. Uh, the sacrifices were meant to point us to Christ. And if you believe that that is what the sacrifices are for, and that's what Hebrews says over and over again, if not to mention Paul, then you cannot believe that Christ is going to be physically here, and he would not only allow but sanction. Animal sacrifices to continue in his consummate kingdom. That does not line up. That can't line up. And and he he quotes several of the dispensationalist theologians saying, yes, this this is a head scratcher, but there would be some animal sacrifices going on in the millennium. And and Gentry said, Yeah, you're right, it is quite a head scratcher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the
2: sacrifices again to remind people
0: not mm-hmm. they try to come up with some they're grasping in some reason why there has to be sacrifices going on and a lot of them will, will speculate oh it's going to be this huge temple because of all the uh, Jews all over the world coming back and so there's going to be quite a huge temple there's going to be quite a few Levites that they find so there's going to be this huge swath of, of, of uh, priests um, but then he says this just doesn't this doesn't square. It doesn't. There isn't going to be. Uh, there isn't evidence for this. And what is this really referring to? A. It could be referring to the actual rebuilding of the temple, which already happened, or it could easily be referring to that time when Christ is is dwelling with his people when he's here on earth the first time. Then, of course, in that second time when he is going to be here on earth as well as he reigns in his unending kingdom. And that brings us to last feature which is the new creation and I would like to read from Mr. Calvin um, as he talks about this uh-huh. it's going to be near the end of chapter uh, 15 uh, no 14 as, yes here we go Calvin as he's talking about which that passage that I read at the beginning Isaiah 65 And this is what he comments on it. He says, by these metaphors, all these metaphors talking about these great things that are coming in the new heavens and new earth. By these metaphors, he promises a remarkable change of affairs. As if God had said that he has both the inclination and the power not only to restore his church, but to restore it in such a manner that it shall appear to gain life and to dwell in a new world. These are exaggerated modes of expression. But the greatness of such a blessing, which was to be manifested at the coming of Christ, could not be described in any other way. Nor does he mean only the first coming, but the whole reign, which must be extended as far as to that last coming. But what is he saying here? That, these, that this new heavens and new earth, is he saying that we are living in a perfect world right now? No, Calvin is acknowledging, though probably what we already talked about and that already not yet and that overlapping of the ages that here we are experiencing not only redemption of individual souls but a redemption of the world. There is a world aspect. There is a broad aspect to what this redemption is doing and that no, we are not in the consummate state of the new heavens and the new earth but the world is being made new. It's happening right now at least according to to Calvin, And Calvin's also saying very clearly that he's not standing with the, the pre-mill folks here as he's saying that the millennium, that that reign of Christ starts when he came first, and that these things that Isaiah 65 is referring to, that it calls the new heavens and new earth, is at the very least happening in some sense now, in between those times when Christ comes the first time and he comes the second time. Now, of course, he would acknowledge, as all the would acknowledge, That's not consummated yet, but we're experiencing those blessings now, which flies right in the face of arguing that either as a pre-mill, that the millennium's not here at all yet, or even as the all mill who says, oh, there's only redemption of the specific soul that doesn't have application to the world at large, the culture at large, nations at large, etc. No, as far as, as we would see it. The benefits of Isaiah 65 are not merely for a specific soul and now you get to go to heaven you get your get out of a free card and you have to wait until that happens. No, there is something going on now as the world is restored, as there is uh, regeneration and redemption of the world. The world awaits, right, uh, the coming of the sons of glory. Uh, why would the world await it if the world's going to be gone? Uh, the world awaits it because there is redemption for the world itself. That is where I will leave us today as we zoom through all of these different features and time scales. Questions? Um, so I haven't been able to catch up with you mm-hmm. on the chapter, so it might have answered the chapter, but
2: by saying the world, you mean actual physical creation? Or do you mean world like the people? Of the world. You're talking about the actual
0: physical earth? I'm saying the world, I mean, there is. there's going to be a, a total regeneration of the physical world. Um, And in the end, yes, eventually. Uh, I would say that the the world is experiencing benefits of that gradually. Um, I I, I couldn't, I guess, tell you exactly how. Uh, (laughs) I see it in cultures, I see it in people, right? So I mean you mean I mean we do not see that the and everything is bent the law of nature that things are bent toward chaos. You're talking specifically of the law of thermodynamics I mean, there. That's No, so, I'm I'm talking about um, and basically it's just I
2: mean I think we would all agree it a sin, that it's been the sin. But um know, we can talk about it afterwards, but
0: I you yeah. had an example that you were, you were No, yeah, I, I yeah, I'm sorry, I'm done. Kind of rushing through what he, he's saying, I'd have to dive specifically into that part that he talks about there. Um, but yeah, I think that y- yes. Now I would I would see it more as whenever I, I see the redemption of the world, I do see that more as yeah, as people and people groups and and in cultures and how the culture changes, okay. which I can see very clearly in history. Uh, so, but yes, am I seeing that that animals are killing each other any less or am I seeing that there are less storms or less hurricanes or something like that? That I don't, I don't see in history. Um, though we do know that of course in that time, in the end, there would be no more devastation in that, in that regard. Um, so, but yeah, that's, that's quite a fact. Quite if that could be schedule, I could do the as I said, that would be a whole class. <laughs> any other questions here?
1: So you touched on it a little bit in uh, 1924, Mm -hmm. 21, talks about there will be a great tribulation. Mm
2: -hmm. Sure. That sense.
0: Right. There's the tribulation as was described in Matthew twenty-four. Really, is being spoken of in even in the context of speaking of the temple. There's already that uh, that connection there, um, and what it describes seems to be very consonant with what happened in 70 AD, with the destruction not only of the temple but of Jerusalem itself, um, of the siege of. Uh, great calamity and gnashing of teeth and people running for the hills and um, all of these things seem to line up with what actually did happen um, and there's one argument that is at least made that is that in that time there will be the gospel will be going forth to all the world that tends to be a dispensational will say well therefore it must be a worldwide event that is happening and the gospel must have made it to the world that didn't happen at that point a, he says, well, A, in A.D. 70, it had gone quite far already. Um, the church had grown quite a bit. And he says, and B, the world is referred to all the time as the known world. And what is the known world? if not the Roman Empire. And we know that the, the, the church had already grown to that extent by that point in time. Um, that the apostles were already in Britannia in and India and uh, North Africa and uh, North Romania. Uh, all of these places, the church was already um, the known world, what they would have known as the world, the gospel was already there um, by AD 70. And so I think that uh, yeah, there's when when we're, the, the great tribulation, something that did occur already. Um, and that's what Gentry is, is proposing. Well, the other thing
2: is if there's a big switch into that time is when the old covenant mm-hmm. comes to an so Mm-hmm. Different. it's a very
0: symbolic uh, yeah thing that happens there when the temple is destroyed there can be no more sacrifices and we see that today right those that still would call themselves Jews and, and, and follow the Judaistic religion do not follow the Judaistic religion of the Old Testament and at the very least in the fact that they cannot and do not sacrifices. Uh, there is no priesthood. Uh, there, the, the records have been burnt up. There's no way to know who can be a priest. Um, neither is there a temple for them to go to. Um so are so not following the Old
1: Testament, what would they be following?
0: It's called later. <laughs> <laughs> that would be they're following uh, the interpretation of the Old Testament law via the Talmud. Um, so which is the uh, which would be really what we call Pharisaism coming right? The Pharisees were already uh, building up that tradition that became that. And so, yes, when Christ says there's an end of an age, or when the apostles say there's an end of an age, there wasn't an end of an age, as to say, right? That there's a very covenantal framework in which the, the new covenant is here. And what does that mean? That God's church is, uh, that Christ is coming, the veil is torn. The nations are now unbound as we see it here. So. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? I just have one question. Yeah. The
1: idea of the gospel being spread, it seems like it spreads through continual suffering. It seems like it spreads better. Mm -hmm, Under persecution? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I just wanted you to talk about that. Yeah,
0: I think that... and. um, I don't think we should wish wish suffering upon ourselves. The reason why I think that we see that is that there is still the the aspect of, and this is why the people of the the old old Roman Empire called the best of the Christians, they called the the ones that died, they called them martyrs. What does that mean? Martyrdios means a witness, a testimony. Um, People become inspired by those who believe in something like Christ and his kingdom and his death and resurrection, so much that they are willing to die for it. Um, and so why did we see so many convert to Christianity in those early days? Because they witnessed the, the power, the life-transforming power of Christ in the lives of so many, so much to the point that they were willing to face the lions in the arena um, for Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we should therefore wish for an arena <laughs> in today's world so that we can prove ourselves by dying. And we actually do see this as uh, becoming a problem even in that day, right? I've, I've mentioned it before in some Sunday schools of uh, many Christians who would come to Roman uh, prefects and say, kill us, we're Christians. Mm-hmm. And he would say, no, I, I, don't, I don't feel like killing you today. Um, you're peaceful people. Go go live and go keep working in your businesses and go keep making money for the town. I'm happy to let you live. And they'd say, no, didn't you hear us? We're Christians. And he said, no, I'm not going to do anything. Many, many times this happened, right? Roman, contrary to popular belief, Roman persecution was inconsistent. It was not actually like a, a world, a empire-wide. Uh, right. Um, and so I would say the reason why we see that in why we see the church atrophy in places like this is because good times in general make men complacent. They make men, uh, and this is what we're seeing today, right? Everything is given to me uh, hand-fed, and therefore I am not uh, like those strong men of old who had to work and fight for what they had, right? And so that's I think more of what we're seeing is the church is atrophying because it's becoming complacent. It shouldn't be complacent, but it's happy to rest on its laurels when we have millions of dollars streaming in and we have huge uh, churches and TVs and thousands of people coming in and we're not being cast into prison and all these things. And so then preachers are happy to continue to uh, compromise on the gospel time and time again through that, that complacency. Uh, so it's still a balance that doesn't mean that a preacher today cannot be strong-willed especially in today as we recognize some of the bad things happening and we uh, we try to strengthen ourselves against it Um, but uh, and it's not an excuse right? if if we live in a a Christian nation that has Christian laws and Christian rulers and, and there's no persecution and things are going very well we're prosperous, all these different things it's not an excuse for the church to become complacent, but that's that's more of how I would see it. Why, why do we see the church growing so much in the hard times? Because hard times breeds hard men. And those hard men apply that aspect of their personality to the gospel. And they are unafraid of death and persecution.
1: I've, 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 I've seen it in May that More it, <laughs> the more you um, have, the more compliant you become,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's something you really have to guard against. You know?
0: Yeah, I think it is a. We can easily become very complacent. Um, it's, it's like. It's the irony we're of all j- afraid of losing
1: ourselves. You know?
0: Right. It's the irony of tyranny. The tyrant doesn't take things away from you; actually, gives it to you. Yeah. So it makes it easier for him to rule.
1: I would also say that persecution is not a doesn't have a monopoly on church growth either. There's no constant, constant That's persecution. The church didn't go on that side. We can give several historical. those communities, you could argue are, are, uh, man, if you're a Christian in that community, you're serious business, right? I'm thinking China right now. I'm thinking some of the Muslim countries. But we also have...
0: And just to give a a brief example in modern day, right, with the college, perhaps a place where a child will experience the most persecution of his faith it'll ever experience. He'll go into a classroom and feel like he can't uh, even uh, pretend to be a Christian, otherwise he'd be just thrown out of the class, right, Uh, let alone actually stand up for his own beliefs and, and all of these things and be lambasted for it. And that has actually been one of the most effective forms of persecution that we've seen as more people, more kids than ever before in American history are walking away from the church as soon as they get an accomplishment. So just to go to show, yes, though we see the church grow in persecution, and we thank God for that, we also see that they wouldn't continue to do persecution unless it was effective. It is actually effective. Um, And because people... People want to be accepted, people want to keep their job, people want to, people want to not die. And we did see that even in Rome. That's, there, there was a whole, after the legalization of Christianity, the church had to deal with what do we do with the people that last? What do we do with people coming back? Now it's popular to be Christian again and all these people say, oh, I didn't really mean it. I didn't really mean to turn over the Bible or pretend I'm not a Christian or all of these things. So it did work, it was effective um, in its goal. Um, so yeah, there's all of these aspects that we have to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, we are we are over time. Um, so uh, how about uh, Sam? Can you pray for us as we uh, close?
2: Mm-hmm.